Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today I have with me a longtime friend and also a very important figure in my life, and you'll understand why in a moment. This is architect Scott Simons. Nice to see you today. Good to see you, Lisa. So you're important for kind of a major reason. We, we are actually sitting in a studio that you created, that you designed. It's part of a house that you designed and built for yourself. And mm-hmm. it's a space that you lived in for many years before we came along and bought it and now right. live in. Well, when I pulled it in the driveway, it was a little awkward. It felt a little awkward, but then it's such, such a wonderful sight, you know, right on the water and um, feels great to be here. It's really nice to be in this room, which was a treatment room originally circular room. So when you were designing this house, I know it was a personal project, but I I know that your architecture firm also was looking a little different back then. It was was basically more about Scott Simons at that point. And now it's really about the group that has become a different entity. You even have a new title, a new name to your group. Yeah. Yeah, it's not Scott Simons Architects anymore. It's Simons Architects because we have a partnership group now and we have a lot of people that have been in the studio for a long time that are, you know, developing new business themselves and developing different types of projects. So we, ha- we really uh, do very little residential work anymore. We do some, usually one a year, but we are involved in a lot of larger scale cultural and business projects um, so the studio's changed. It's much more mature. We have a lot of senior people that have tremendous experience and tremendous technical abilities. And so we're working on much more complex buildings. And they take a lot of attention. So it's really it's hard to shift to a residential project, although we do occasionally, especially for um, people that we've known for a long time. But, um, but it's much more of what we call commercial or cultural studio now. The fact that... We now live, me personally and my husband now live in a place that you designed and created and lived in yourself then makes it even more special since mm-hmm. you're not doing residential work even as a firm anymore. Yeah, it's limited quantity or something like that. You know, Yeah, there aren't too many more of these coming along. Yeah. It's also an interesting, I mean, this particular design is very interesting because um, it's known really by many people who there's a hill that's right by the house, as I know you well know, and many people, they bike out here, they walk out here, they walk their dogs up the hill, they run out here. And anyone, if I, if they say, oh, I love little John, where, where, do, where do you live? I'll say, well, we live in the set of three houses on the hill. And they're like, oh, I know exactly where that is. I mean, it's a very distinctive design. Yeah. It's not shingle style. Not shingle style. No, it's yeah. quite different. But um, yeah, it was very controversial at the time there. People either loved it or hated it. And it was kind of fun. People would stop at the end of the driveway and look and just try and size it up. And I would come out and say, what do you think? And they would either say, I love it or I hate it. And there was nothing. I didn't hear anybody say anything like, oh, it's okay. It was usually they either loved it or they hated it. And it was... It was a little controversial at the time. Even building on Little John, anything on Little John, because it's a little tiny island with little tiny lots, um, I think is it traditionally has been quite challenging. So I would imagine that if here you are coming along and you're going to build on Little John, and I think you're building on a site of a former camp, I'm, I, I believe. Right. 
It was a camp. It was a camp, yeah. and you, you, I believe you had to ask for some special considerations. So you're already starting like right out of the gate <laughs> with a few things against you, and then you create this really wonderful but striking design that's unlike anything else on the island. <laughs> so I, I just want to kind of explore <laughs> that mindset a little bit. I mean, were you, were you just feeling like, yeah. well, this is what we want, and this is what we're going to do, and we're just going to keep pushing forward and you know, we respect where other people are coming from, but this is this is our life. Well, I think it's big. It's that question is bigger than this house. So I, um, when I moved to Portland, most of the commercial buildings that were being built were red brick. And uh, so I, you know, I'd spent time in New York City be, before I came here, and there aren't any red brick or very few red brick buildings except the old townhouses. But so I didn't have that. Uh, imprint that everything had to be red brick. And so I kind of challenged that just going way back, even before Scott Simons Architects was formed. I was like, what, why is everybody just automatically make the buildings red brick? So uh, we started doing buildings with much more glass and everything. And, and it was people, you know, many people were saying, finally, you know, somebody's breaking the tradition. So as a young architect in town, um, I was willing to challenge the status quo. And so that just that just played out in other projects that I did too, residential projects as well. I always was trying to see if we could do it a little differently. And I wasn't trying to be controversial per se. I was just trying to say, I'm a creative person. This is what I do. This is how I see it. And this is what I think is the right thing to do. So I wasn't trying to, you know, in this particular house, I wasn't ever trying to do a shingle-style house or a house that blended in. I was trying to blend the scale and the, you know, the siting of the house and all of those pieces so that it wouldn't be overwhelming. There are houses that have been built on the island here that are huge, that are like McMansions, and nobody says anything about them. Nobody complains about them because they have shingles or they have gabled roofs or something like that. But boy, heck, if you, if you don't do a gable roof and shingles, a lot of, it's, it's hard for people to understand. And I, I, I get that. I mean, I also feel that part of my job as a creative person is to push the limits and to educate and to just do, do things the way I see them, reflect those in the design and in the way I approach life. You know, some of the spaces inside these, your house and, uh, are quite beautiful and quite different than what, and then there are other rooms that are quite simple. You know, the bedrooms are very simple, bed, rectangular bedrooms with windows, you know, but there are other spaces that move and, you know, flow and things like that and inside, outside. And those are all concepts that everybody would appreciate, even though they might not like the roof line, they probably would like the, the interior layout of the rooms because it takes advantage of the views and the orientation and the way the sun moves. And that's not just with residential projects. We do that with all the projects. We, I see the sun. I, I see where it's coming from. I see where the wind is coming from. It's, we all do. All, all, all the people in my studio and in other good studios, they all think about that. And then the form, we, we just let it evolve. We don't start with an idea about a form, what it's supposed to look like. We let it grow out of the what's trying, we're trying to do to make the building help people do their jobs or, do what, or to live or whatever. I do remember when you and I uh, spoke last on air, because I've interviewed you previously, 
I remember our conversation about the light and about mm. how the light changes with the seasons and mm. how that's something that even as you're designing it, you understand is still going to shift once something is built because there's still no real way to know exactly how the sun is going to hit, but you're doing kind of your best guess. Right. And that was such a fascinating concept for me because it's the sense that you're actually almost creating something that is living to co-evolve with truly things that are living mm-hmm. on the outside, trees and right. grass and I can't, the sun, I don't think it's living per se, but it is, it is part of the living environment. But I wonder how many people know that or understand that that's part of design and architecture. More than you might think. I think it's an intuitive knowing. They might not be able to articulate it. I mean, my, my job is to articulate it with words and with drawings and, and then to build it. But I think everyone knows what it's like to sit in the sun and feel the warmth of the sun or to watch something grow in a garden or to, you know, see a natural material that's not, you know, that's, that has a clear finish, a piece of wood that or a door, you know, the doors in your house, for example, are just beautiful. They're natural wood. Um, I think everyone intuitively can relate to that. I, I give an example, a recent example of um, much to the surprise of everyone involved in the Portland Museum of Art competition. There were over 2,000 people that commented on the four different designs. And those four designs all had very strong direction and uh, um, attitude about natural daylight. So, you know, in galleries, you can't have any direct sunlight. Uh, it will destroy the paintings or the drawings or the, or the prints or whatever. So there's a great attention to northern diffuse light and even protecting against, you know, the late afternoon sun on the June 20th or something that might come in at a slight angle. There's tremendous attention paid to that. And so when those four competition entries were presented, there all of the architects spoke to, about the light, the quality of light, and you could see them in the videos as they moved through the space and everything. And over 2,000 people wrote comments in about that. And, of course, they had a jury and a competition uh, jury. And so many of them wrote about the quality of the light and how nice and the windows and, you know, what you could see through and all these sorts of things. Again, not... You know, many of them were architects, but many of them weren't architects. They're just people in the community that were reacting to the presentations. So it's a good example of how we all relate to the quality of light. And, you know, we live in a northern place. It's dark. Here we're in the dark season right now, right? And days are short. Summer, the days are long. Like everybody, nobody goes on vacation in the summer in Maine. No Mainers go on vacation. We all want to be here for that reason, to enjoy that, those long days. Yeah, I think you're raising something. And, I, and, and when I said, I wonder how many people know that, I think I, I meant, I wonder how many people know that architecture takes into consideration light when mm-hmm. engaging in the design process. But I absolutely agree with mm-hmm. you that there is an intuitive sense. It's, it's like watching your dog lie on the patio in the sun or watching your cat you know, mm-hmm. be in the one little patch of sunlight in front of the door. <laughs> right. I mean, we're we're not that different. I think you're you're right. There's something that's. I mean, we're we're as elemental as the dogs and the cats and all the other critters. We we kind of gravitate 
towards mm-hmm. that that light and that warmth. And and I think there is something interesting about what you're saying that it, you're 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 a designer, but you're also someone who needs to articulate something that we feel intuitively. And mm-hmm. it's like there's a translation that's occurring. And there's even what you're telling me. Uh, what I feel is the sense that you almost need to stand your ground because you're you're trying to help put forth something that's very important and that maybe other people aren't quite yet in a place to understand because that's just not what their cognitive framework looks like at, at the time that you start having the conversation. Exactly, exactly. So to get back to the, the original question, you're right. I don't think uh, in general people understand that that's, that's one of the primary roles of architects is to pay attention to those natural phenomena. And it is a part of... Uh, architect's job is to communicate that and to explain that because it is, is a fundamental principle. Air and sunlight are free. Bricks and mortar are expensive. So take advantage of things that don't cost you anything. Why would you not pay attention to the light? It's there. You know, you either choose to include it or exclude it strategically, and it makes a difference in terms of the quality of space and quality of, of everything that happens inside. You were mentioning to me before we started talking on the air about um, this this shift in your life, this this new way of looking at how you approach future plans, how you approach kind of your present situation, um, and in the parallel with the work that you do, where at one point you were the person who was, you know, doing the design, you know, doing that kind of showing up and taking care of the day-to-day work, and now you have a very different role. Um, I guess talk to me a little bit about that, because I, I can actually relate to it both personally and professionally, but I want to hear more about it from you. Well, I have a, I have a group of architects and um, interns that work with me. Uh, there's 15 of us now, and our studio is incredibly busy and incredibly active and engaged in all kinds of larger-scale projects than we were when I first talked to you years ago. And it's very exciting, but it's a very different studio. It's not called Scott Simons Architects anymore. It's called Simons Architects because I have a partnership and I have, I have four partners and they're all engaged in every aspect of the business every day. I spend a lot of time working on details of the business, coaching, working with the other partners, just reviewing things. I do I still do initiate projects myself, and I still am involved in a number, many, many projects. But the partners are very actively engaged in growing their presence and their voices and their authentic uh, selves through the business as well. So my role has shifted, and it's been great. And I, I uh, resisted it for for years. I still wanted to be the guy that generated the design idea, and then I realized, well. I'm not as good at that as I was about being fast and generating and work, being able to work constantly all the time. I, I don't have the stamina. I have a different kind of a stamina, I should say. It's not that I don't have stamina. It's that I don't have that more youthful type of stamina, which is very focused and everything. And um, we were talking about it earlier that I, I read this thing about Bob Dylan. They asked him, when you wrote all those songs, you know, back in the 60s, where did that come from? And he said, it, they just came to me. I don't know where they came from. They just came to me and I just wrote them down and I figured them out and sang them. 
And they said, can you do that anymore? And he said, no, I can't do that anymore, but I can do other things that I couldn't do back then. And that's how I feel now. I've sort of been looking at this, sort of trying to figure out, because a lot of architects will start to taper off at my age. I'm 68, so they will taper off. And then you become a little less engaged in the work. And um, gradually, you know, you stop doing the work. And I actually love the work. And my father worked until he was 90 uh, and was pretty active. Uh, you know, he worked less, but he still was very involved and it was very good for him mentally. And it was good for him to get out of the house. He would put a tie on, go down to the office and, and work on a few things. And, um, and that's my model. My model is not to retire at age 60 or 65. I miss those. I went flying right by those. I didn't even realize I was 68 until recently. Um, it finally dawned on me that I'm in the last third, you know, I call it the last third. And, um, but I also, I, people say, when are you retiring? And I can't answer the question because the question seems weird to me. It seems bizarre. Like, what do you mean? Why would I stop doing something that I like to do that I'm still pretty good at? You know, if I didn't enjoy it and I wasn't, if I didn't think I was adding any value, I would stop doing it. But I still feel like, especially with the mature, maturing of the studio where there's, there's a lot of help needed and I have a lot of experience and I can be very helpful in a lot of ways. So um, it's, it's great for me, but it's a different role than when I was younger and I wanted to be the guy, you know. Now I'm not, I want to back off and let them be, I want my partners to succeed. I want them, I want to help them succeed. I think that that's actually a very critical thing that it's, it's not just each of us as individuals and our individual pieces that we bring to mm -hmm. our personal and professional lives. It's how those pieces interact with one another and how those pieces are um, given the space to grow or given the time to be quiet. That's it. Exactly. I think the, um, <clears throat> You know, I spent years trying to develop a culture of excellent design excellence, we call it, where uh, it didn't matter what the project was. We were going to do the best we could with what we had to work with, the budget and the client, and try and push. Like, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, is that I was the guy who was pushing, pushing, pushing. And we did. We developed a, a culture of excellence where projects that we didn't think we were where maybe our best projects were getting recognized for design excellence. Uh, we've been very fortunate in that regard. The, the studio has been recognized over and over again for its work all, all across New England. And so um, that that's because we built a good culture and everybody was willing to participate in the development and the growth of that culture so that within that, the partners and the interns and the younger architects, there's a place for them to where they can work with other like-minded people that are all interested in doing beautiful buildings that will stand the test of time. And they look different. You know, the Portland Public Library doesn't look the same as the Wayne Fleet Lower School building, doesn't look the same as the ferry terminal, doesn't look the same as the main public broadcasting that we're going to be building soon. And they all have a slightly different character to them that's responsive to that particular client's needs. And... And, uh, but they all have excellence. And they all have been well thought out, carefully thought out, carefully detailed so that they will hold up and they'll stand the test of time. And that's really kind of my role now is to remind everybody what that is 
and young people come in to help them get used to the idea that they're part of a team. They're not going to, they're going to work together and be better than they would be on their own. Scott, what was your father's work? He was a lawyer who became a judge uh, in the state court system, and he ended up working in Albany uh, and then had to retire at age 70, mandatory retirement for the state uh, appeals, court of appeals judges. And uh, so then he, uh, with his best friends <laughs> in town, he opened a law practice with them, joined their practice essentially, and was kind of of counsel and continued to do a lot good because he was involved in a lot of lawmaking uh, for the state state laws and things like that. He was had some pretty, pretty nice uh, consulting gigs the first 10 years after he retired. But he started working with the Oneida Nation, uh, which was just about 10 miles away from where he lived in Rome, New York, upstate New York, and helped them rewrite their uh, legal system. They had a tribal council type of a system, and they had done quite well with... Um, investments and with uh, their casinos and things like that. And their, their, their world got more complex and they needed to have a, a hybrid between a, a, uh, an American-type legal system and a Native-type legal system. And he and another colleague of his from the court, who had also retired at age 70, got together and worked for the tribe for 20 years. Uh, and they, put, they wrote this code, which is used, has been adopted by many tribes, other native tribes in the country. So he was, and he said at the, uh, when he re finally retired from that at age 90, they, you know, they treated him like a, an elder, the natives, the, the, the tribe was so respectful of my father. He felt like he'd kind of been kicked out of the court at age 70 because they had this mandatory retirement and they got another person coming in. It was like, what, you know, what happened? And then the tribe was so appreciative of everything that he and his friend Stu had done. They would give them these little feathers. So each feather was in recognition of five years of service to the tribe. So he ended up with four feathers. And it, he said it was one of his most prized possessions. He said that he had such a good feeling about that. And it really fed him for a long, long time. So in hearing what you're currently doing and what your father was doing. It seems that this, this role of this, we'll, we'll say the final third, although the, the final, I guess that, that has a, a, a little bit of a tone to it that I don't really love, but um, <laughs> maybe one of the thirds, the, yeah. the next third, let's say the next third. The next third. The next you never third. know, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Maybe you'll live another third after that and then it'll only be you'll only be halfway through wouldn't that be interesting that would be really interesting yeah but <clears throat> what i wonder is do we have enough space in our current society to allow for that do we actually have um the ability to i mean you said your father was kind of kicked out of the court system and I know when my father was in the Maine Air National Guard as a physician, he stayed on far longer than most people. And I kept there was a lot of wink and nod going on, mm -hmm. but but he was still very active right up to the very end. And I think he never would have retired if they wouldn't have made him. <laughs> and 
I wonder how we can foster that. I wonder how we can continue to encourage that understanding that there is such depth and richness to a person's experience that, you know, whatever it is that they do next, it's really a kind of a, it's a feeding forward, feeding back situation. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, as we age, we have to claim it. So I think it works both ways is to basically not, it's, I have to say there's a little bit of an energy, like almost all my friends are retired, you know, that I went to college with and high school with. They're almost all retired and they're skiing all the time and wanting me to join them on this and that trip. And, and I do when I can. But um, I might be one of, I might be an exception to the rule here in terms of um, what my experience was with my father and what my thoughts are about what I want to do and what I'm capable of doing. Um, in the coming years. So, but the first thing is to not just accept the cultural norm that you retire. Uh, retire when you want to retire. Retire, do, you know, take charge in the same way I took charge when I started the studio. Same, you know, started moving into commercial, you know, take, I'm going to just try and decide for myself and not have a peer group because to me there's a lot of peer pressure so for the first thing is for uh, people as they age to basically rethink. You know, look what Matisse did when he was could no longer walk and could no longer paint. He started cutting things out of paper. It was like incredible what he did. Look what Picasso did. I mean, think of all the creative people that have transitioned to a different way of expressing themselves because they can't do it. You know, dancers, I mean, they, they can't dance past quite early, but then they can become you know, cure, um, what do you call them, choreographs, they can, you know, all kinds of things. You see it all over the place in creative endeavors. And architecture is a creative, a creative, it's a business, but it's a creative business. And that's the energy that, in the circles that I hang around with among architects, it's, it's all about the creative energy. And that doesn't fade. That's all still there. And the way it's applied, I think it's the key. So that's the first thing. And then culturally, I think... Um, you know, learning from what my father experienced with the Native tribe that was, you know, there was incredible respect for what he could bring to the tribe. They didn't have that. They didn't have that in-house, you know, and they brought him in. And over time, they developed this incredible respect for each other. Um, and so he was respected as an elder who, who had a unique ability to bring wisdom to the table. We see it with grandparents all the time. I think young parents see the wisdom. They thought their parents were not so bright, and then all of a sudden they have children and try and re realize it's challenging, and the grandparents bring that wisdom. And that's that kind of simple, that kind of simple wisdom that is relevant in, in the world of, of business and work and creativity as well. I think it's the same thing. You know, embrace... Embrace the older people. Don't push them out into, you know, like just ask. You know, you know, the, again, I, these things keep popping into my head, but Solzhenitsyn retired, you know, he moved, he escaped and was living in Vermont. And he was interviewed as an old man. And they said, you must have a lot of people asking you to mentor them. And he said, no. And they're like, what? Nobody's asked you to review their transcript or anything like that? And he says, no. And they said, well, are you a opposed to that? And he goes, I would love to. Are you kidding me? 
but you have to ask. So that's that's part of it too. You have to ask. I think there has to be a there's a meeting in the middle. So there's a, there would be a yes from Solzhenitsyn if someone approached him and said, "I respect your work. I would love it if you could help me figure this out." You know, that's meeting in the middle. He wouldn't necessarily be going to them. They wouldn't necessarily be. You know, I mean. I don't know if I'm articulating that correctly, but I think you have to be willing to still offer wisdom and willing to accept wisdom on the other side. I like both of those um, ideas, the idea that you actually do have to claim the space because I, I think it is very easy for people to create a mental construct around what they expect other people to be. If I'm going to go retire and live on a golf course near Daytona, then maybe that's what everybody else should do because I think that offers a place of comfort. And maybe that is the right person for one person, but not really the right for another, which is something that's also very interesting is when we're younger, there is a sense that it's okay to be different, that it's okay to choose our own path. It's funny that we all, as we get older, we're just going to put all the old people in one place and assume that they all do the same thing and eat the same food and act Mm -hmm. the same way. Hmm. Did, they, did we all cross a threshold and then we, there was a mind meld and all of a sudden our uniqueness disappeared? Yeah. I mean, it's a weird, like, I don't, I don't know how we get there. But I also, I think about something I read that was written about your firm and how COVID changed the way that you even work, for example, mm-hmm. where you had a young mother with a child and I believe this child, somebody had gotten COVID or there was, there was exposure to illness and various things and you were able to work it out so that this person was able to continue to work and work from home and be able to care for their child. Mm. And, and, and I, I actually think that there's something structurally that we could be doing differently rather than everybody has to work 40 hours, everybody has to always be on site. Like, yes, let's have the bulk of people having some kind of communal space that we go to, but what about people at different stages? that need to do things differently, can we make that possible for them and not make it feel like it's infringing on other people? Because I think that's always that always seems to be the pushback is we need it to be fair for everybody. Well, what if we made a system that had a little flexibility all the way through so mm. that you're not feeling like if you're the one right in the middle that you have to pick up all the slack for people on both ends that maybe aren't able to work the 40 hours on site doing yeah, the hard work? Totally agree. So many great lessons from the pandemic. So many great lessons. First of all, uh, almost no one in my studio works in the studio full time. We don't expect it anymore. I fought that for the first year or two. I was like, this is crazy. We can't, how can we do these Zoom calls? Well, we actually got good at doing Zoom calls. And we actually got good at being discerning about when you needed to be in the studio and when it was actually worked better to work remotely. The example of the young mother is a good one. You know, um, and we worked through that, and it worked to the benefit of everyone. It worked certainly to the benefit of her and her child and her family, but also it worked out fine for the studio. So being more flexible. I think one thing I experienced after about a year of the pandemic is that it was actually okay to say, I need another week to finish these drawings, or I need another week to finish this review of this document. Whereas before it was like pedal to the metal, everything was go, go, go. Deadlines were tight. If you missed a deadline, there was a feeling that we disappointed, let somebody down. And then became, we became more human. We realized that there were things that were out of our control. 
like we couldn't control that. You know, look at a construction now. I mean, I'm I'm renovating a house myself, and and <laughs> roofer can't get there. When's he going to get there? Well, maybe next week. Well, you know, they can't get the material. You know, there, and I'm not angry about it. But it took, you know, two years ago or three years ago, I would have been, what do you mean the roofer's not coming this week? I, what are we, we're not going to get the windows in. It's getting cold, you know, or whatever. But I think that that was one, another lesson was like humanity came forward. It's like we're all in this together. There's nothing we can do about some of these situations. So let's do the best we can. And one of them was the flexibility to work at home. And it was a big investment for all businesses to be able to duplicate you know, we work on large screens. We do all the drawings for John and Revit there on these. You know, we have big screens and everything, so we had to have them at home and at work. So when people were coming into the studio, they had they could just plug in their laptop and boom, everything would be there. Same thing at home. So there was an investment, but it actually has been paid off beautifully because I think people, certainly in my studio, and I know from other studios that I've talked to, that that's been a benefit. Uh, gives greater flexibility. I mean, you know, some, not all my... Um, my team lived right in Portland. Some of them come in from Scarborough, Saco, all different places. And that's a time commitment. I mean, you know, yesterday, a snowy, slushy day, you know, and people are trying to figure out whether it's going to be easy or hard to get home at the end of the day because it wasn't snowing when they came in. So there's a lot of, a lot of reasons why um, it's good. We used to routinely drive two, three, sometimes even four hours to a two-hour meeting and come back afterwards. We would never even think of it now. We'd be like, what, are you crazy? Let's do a Zoom meeting. We'll come up there if it's really important that we see something on the site or observe some condition or you know, a board meeting or something like that. But for a regular meeting that in our in my business is typically every couple of weeks you have a, a meeting with the building committee. Um, we can do those by Zoom. Save everybody time and travel and save energy and, you know, fossil fuels. I mean, there's there's a million benefits. So one of the things that I absolutely agree with you, and in healthcare, I think it's been interesting to see because we were doing virtual care before COVID. Largely, it wasn't reimbursed, which is why we didn't do a lot of it. But it really is a pretty significant, um, they call it a patient satisfier, which is kind mm-hmm. of a weird term of art, but people like it. Let's just say that. Yeah. Um, but... You know, now it's, you know, there are many people, they like to come into the office. We want to see them. And the insurance companies are like, "Mm, maybe we won't pay for it as much. We're not really sure. And my thought is, it's a both and. You know, you you really, it's the ability to offer access and have people connect where it makes sense for them. And I actually similarly think that creating culture is a both and. I mean, I I think you, you can still have a creative team that works well together if some part of the time they are working remotely. You just do it, as you say, you just do it differently. It's a different generation. And they have different ideas about how they want to live. My children, for example, who are in their mid-30s, they, when they buy Christmas gifts, I mean, it seems like a small thing, but we should all be thinking, I think, I'm learning from them, you know. They buy gifts from their friends or from local people because they want to support their friends and their local people. They buy local beer. When they're in a town, they go to the local beer that's made right there. The same thing with, you know, they buy local produce, those, those kinds of things. Why aren't we all doing this? I mean, this, this generation, what, 
whatever their generation is and the younger ones, they do it without thinking about it. It's, it's exactly the right thing to do. And I think it's more our generation that buys everything on Amazon. You know, maybe not that generation. I don't know. I'm making a universal statement here, which is probably not accurate. But my experience with my children is they teach me all the time about supporting your community. So my practice is pretty much centered within the greater Portland area and Maine and northern New England. So almost everything we do is within 100 or 200 miles of here. That's my community. Like, I don't need to work in L.A. I don't need to work in Chicago. And I always, you know, when I was practicing in New York City, I thought, oh, we got to grow, grow this huge practice and everything. And I'm like, I actually want to design buildings in my town. I want to do buildings in Portland that I can see and that people, my friends can use and benefit from. You know, I'm, I'm very proud of that some of the public buildings we've done in Portland. So, and that's what my, my children say all the time, is that you want to support your community. This is where you live. Support where you live. Yeah, and I, I, I think what, what my children, who are a little bit younger than your children, but we'll just call them roughly the same generation, and I see the same thing from them. And I, I think this is, a, this is something that we once were doing. I, I think there once w- was more of this local, I mean, before we had Amazon, we went to the local bookstore. Because that's mm-hmm. what there was. I mean, mm-hmm. before we had cell phones, we didn't talk to people on the phone until we went home with our landline and the cord that reached into the closet while you're talking to your boyfriend, you know, right. <laughs> and the mom's banging on the door. You know, so I think it's interesting that this isn't necessarily a new idea, but it's being kind of reinvigorated by a group that actually has the capacity to connect with each right. other in other really big ways. But they're saying, no, we want to do small ways too. Right. And, and we need that kind of tangible life experience. So... I, I think, again, it, for me, it comes back to the both and thing that, mm-hmm. you know, it is possible to perhaps touch the, the best aspects of the things yeah. that we have available to us now. I agree with that. And, I, and you know, as I think about the Amazon thing, you know, for me, um, I was always a shop local person. When I went back into medicine full time and I happened to commute to a healthcare system that's about an hour away, and now I don't have the time <laughs> that I once did. So, and, and I was working through the pandemic and I was showing up in person working through the pandemic. So I was so grateful to the people who actually, the Amazon, you know, the, the drivers and the Amazon packers and all the people. And I, I would have loved to be able to do local things and also, you know, for what I needed at that time so that I could continue to show up and take care of my patients and work all the time. Thank goodness we had people who were, who were still doing those jobs. So I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And I also think it goes back to that sort of different stages of a different life, different yeah. life experiences. And, you know, how, how do we call the best of all the things that we have now available to us and utilize it in a way that we all feel good about? Yeah, certainly my 90-year-old father did not go to the store to shop for his <laughs> shirts anymore. Um, but you're right, different stages of life for sure. The, the mix. It's the same thing as the hybrid work situations. There's, there's a perfect hybrid shopping combo, too, for everybody. They find their own comfort zone in there. Knowing how much I value my father, and my father, as many people who um, have been paying attention to the show over the last few years know, he has cancer, but he's doing very well. And um, I talk to him every single day on my car ride. In fact, in the morning I get a text from my mother, 
And in the evening, I ride home from work, and I talk to my father on the phone. And he was forced into retirement. He loved being in medicine. Every single day, he precepts me. Every single day, we talk medicine, and he gives me advice, and I listen, and we just talk through things. And so knowing that your father has passed away, I'm sure that is a huge loss for you. And, um, and it sounds like he really was a wonderful person and you had a great relationship with him. So I'm, yes, thank you. I'm sending you <laughs> a lot of, a lot of love and healing thoughts because it's, <laughs> thank uh, thank you. I, I don't know what, you know, we, I, I don't think any of us like to think about what happens when our parents pass away. And thank goodness you had your father until he was 90. 95. 95. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you retired for the final five years of his yeah, life. Exactly. <laughs> wow. I guess that's now you get to be the father. You get to be the 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 fi- the the, the, uh, yeah. the grandfather, the one that your sons and your children look up to, and the grandchildren. Yeah. And it's not bad. Not bad. I hear that. I'm not that far behind you, so <laughs> I understand. It's a weird mind shift, but yeah. it's not a bad thing. No, I think it's it's part of it's part of life. I mean, the, the, you know, my father passed away at home. He just stopped breathing. He, he didn't. He was lucky in that he wasn't sick he was you know he was confused a little bit confused and didn't move very well but he just stopped breathing I mean it was like an incredible experience to be with him and I got to see him a lot because again the pandemic gave me flexibility that I didn't give myself before I could have had I could have gone to see him every two or three weeks 10 years ago but I didn't because we had this schedule you know the pandemic freed up the schedule I could zoom into a meeting from his house if I wanted to, if I needed to. But I also, I think, going back to that idea that um, people took their foot off the accelerator a little bit during the pandemic to get more humanity into it, I gave myself, you know, this could be totally just a personal thing, but I gave myself a lot more flexibility, which worked beautifully in terms of my father's last few years, is that I was able to spend a lot of time with him and say all the things that I needed to say. He said all the things to me that he needed to say. We had some really sweet conversations. He used to go to go to bed at like 8 o'clock, and then he'd come down at about 9 o'clock and want his hot chocolate. So I would make him his hot chocolate and sit and talk to him on the stools in the kitchen. Every night that I was there, this would happen. I don't know if it was... He kept doing, I think he did it every night, regardless of whether I was there or not. But, you know, those times are, my, my message to myself on that is don't wait till you're 95, you know, or 92 or whenever I started doing it. Don't wait for a pandemic. It's like that's exactly the conversation we should be having with each other all the time. Now, don't have to wait. I love it when I, you know, I've, Frequently still will stay late in the studio. It's a nice quiet time and I can get some things done. And there are others that, that like that little last half hour, hour, two. And I'm having wonderful conversations with those members of my team that that uh, hang around a little bit longer. You know, it quiets down. There's no phones ringing. There's a, well, we don't use phones anymore. But but you know what I mean? The, the energy and the activity of the day have dampened and it's a perfect time. To say, how are you doing? How is that going? You know, just things that I I was always rushing off, you know. Go, gotta get out of, you know. Just no more rush. 
it's really been a pleasure to talk with you. And really, it's very interesting to have talked to you during the foot on the gas stage of your life <laughs> and now foot off the gas, but still heading forward in a positive direction stage of life. I mean, I really appreciate your taking the time to kind of explore some of these ideas with me. Thanks, Lisa. And thank you for sort of uh, allowing me to talk about this. This is kind of evolving. I mean, I'm in the thick of it. I'm in the thick of this transition. So some of these are half-formulated ideas, but appreciate the opportunity to at least get them out there so other people may begin thinking about it or continue thinking about it themselves. I have a strong sense you are, you are not alone in being <laughs> in the thick of things. I suspect other people... Yeah. Have very similar for sure. experiences. For sure. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I've been speaking with architect and friend and builder of the home in which I now live with my family and husband, architect Scott Simons. And I look forward to your maybe visiting one of these wonderful buildings that he and his firm have created around the state. And uh, maybe perhaps Scott will come back and join me on another future episode of Radio Maine. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome.